Go. Ready? Yeah. 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 Okay. I th- so I think you're supposed to say hi. I'm James. Okay. No, no, don't. No, 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 give it. A- hi, I'm James, and I'm Mark, I'm and we're two data guys. What are we putting this for? Episode two. Yeah. We finished off last week talking about possibly having identity theft mm-hmm. as the next episode. Yep. Since then, I've actually talked to a couple people and mentioned our first podcast, mm-hmm. and they said, oh, that's interesting, but what about Australia's metadata retention laws? Yeah, because that's only recently come in, sort of October again. That's October right. It was year. funny, because October 6th is when there was the EU the safe harbor made illegal, mm-hmm. the, uh, met- yep. and then October 13th, which I think was a Friday, I, know, <laughs> I, I had this feeling it was a Friday, is when the full Australian metadata retention laws came into play. So mm-hmm. I think... This episode, we should be talking about everything around that. That metadata. The misconceptions, what is the reality, what is metadata, the history of the legislation, because it's not something they just snapped their fingers mm-hmm. and created. It actually has quite a history. And also, what's myth and what isn't. Yeah. Because... There's been a lot of press around... There's been a lot of press, a lot of big brotherness, mm-hmm. and I think it's worth investigating um, as to what is the truth. So I think that's what we should be talking about. Cool. In March, the federal government's data retention laws were passed. They require telecommunications companies to retain their customers' phone and computer metadata for two years. There was a time the internet was free. The government is listening. Your privacy is compromised. Big Brother is watching. Metadata! 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 Big Brother snooping on ya. Can the attorney inform the Senate of his understanding of the term metadata, preferably without reference to envelopes? And the government in what law ruined my weird boy? It's not the content of the letter, uh, it's what's on the envelope. Yeah, data retention. Were you surprised that Australia passed uh, metadata retention laws with the support of both major parties? Well, I'm an American citizen. I have witnessed my government exploiting the fear of terrorism to get more and more powers by constantly hyping and exaggerating the threat to put people in fear in order to get more surveillance and detention powers. And Where you're more likely to die by being struck by lightning or by going out to dinner tonight and contracting a fatal intestinal illness than you are by dying in a terrorism attack. Stay away from my Who you called, when you called them, how often you called them, how long you talked. And my When I watched both parties in Australia exploit terrorism fears in order to get more powers for themselves, it's a very familiar dynamic. A Simpsons and former general counsel of the NSA, Stuart Baker, who said, on Metadata absolutely tells you everything about somebody's life. If you have enough metadata, you don't really need content. It's sort of embarrassing how predictable we are as human beings. Got a slow connection. To collect everyone's communications in advance of criminal suspicion. Uh, this is called pre-criminal investigation. 
tell me but then they can then share this with foreign intelligence criminal masterminds don't converse on uneven hooters3.com regardless of whether or not you're doing anything wrong you're being watched Before we begin, we have to talk about the wine. The wine. And you traveled across to New Zealand. New Zealand, uh, a special trip to go and pick up some wine. Just to pick up the wine, no, no, isn't that really. <laughs> Well, this week we actually have a New Zealand wine. I was lucky enough last week to be invited over to a little vineyard in the Southern Island uh, in an area called Central Otago. They make cool climate wine, so a lot of Pinot Noir in there. Um, getting very well known for the Pinot Noir. We were staying at the vineyard and the winemaker of the vineyard we were at, which is called Prophet's Rock. So the real the real name is P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S Rock, rather than Prophet's as in making lots of money. He said, go to this winemaker. He made, he's on a very small vineyard. It's um, He's actually known as the Hobbit Vineyard. It's a really tiny 20 hectares. We went in, did a, a wine tasting. He said, try the Pinot Rosé. Pinot Rosé, Pinot Noir is normally made as a red wine, but if you put that wine for a shorter amount of time on the skins, it comes out to the, to the most extreme as a white wine. Uh, this is, um, I think, a, a few days, a couple of weeks on sitting in those skins and getting a blush, a tinge of rosé. The French actually went to the extreme. Um, you may not know, but Champagne is actually made from Pinot Noir from red grapes. It's just that they take it to the extreme of how long they leave it on the skin. All what this do you mean is by leave it on the skin. So when you've done all of that mashing. pressing and mashing with your feet or yeah. <laughs> or in the vat, the wine skins will float around and then slowly uh, rise to the top. And the amount of time that you leave them in there increases the amount of tannin, that sort of dryness in the mouth that you get. So this is a very short amount of time that those skins are left in with the wine to ferment and mature. This Pinot Rosé, you can taste the slight tannins, but it's still a, a very pinky colored wine. It's certainly not red, it's certainly not white, a little bit in between. So let's, here we go. Yes, well, cheers. The color looks quite nice. Yeah. It's kind of lolly water color, but a nice rosé. Mm. Taste is quite nice. It's not, it's not too sweet. It is. No, it's, it's not dry. too dry either, though. And the, your lolly water, I can get almost bubblegumness out of it. I don't know if that's the right, but it's uh, quite nice. Yeah. It's a good uh, kind of summer wine. Mm. Back to the metadata. Yes. Um, the things I read in the press uh, about this were very much scare factor all of the data even more of the data than ever was is going to be available to be used by the government they don't have to ask permission they don't have to get a court order to get this data it's available to anybody almost anybody in any government department is going to be able to see every call that you've made who you made it to every text you sent every chat you did every email you've sent and, and what's in there and uh, i think how close to the truth that is is actually quite quite a way away when we began a little bit of background research that's what i thought and heard the definition of metadata is data about data mm -hmm. first of all this legislation there's a couple bites of the cherry for this it's not something they just suddenly threw out mm. and said okay 2014 
This is when we're going to do it, 2015, it gets launched. Yeah. It actually was discussed back in 2010 under, wow. under a different guise. In 2012, uh, the Attorney General, Nicola Roxon, who was part of the Labour government, had a discussion around metadata. Mm-hmm. And it was very open, it was very vocal. This is where the kernel of the current metadata laws come mm-hmm. from. 2014, the Liberals come in, they actually put the legislation into place Mm -hmm. and it gets launched on April the 13th Yep, and gets signed as a bill. And we'll put some links into the Mm -hmm. website where you can actually go look at it. It's actually very well documented around that one particular bill. What Mm -hmm. isn't documented is the history. You have to go through Google (laughs) and find what it used to be called and so forth. Mm -hmm. I think it started off with this protective security policy framework Mm -hmm. and there's a couple other names. When it was signed into law at, in April, telecommunications companies, ISPs, ISPs and phone providers, phone providers have six months to implement it. Okay, so that was from October. No, no, no. So that that was from April. Oh, April, April. thirteenth. Okay, came into law in October thirteenth. Which is funny because October 6th is when the EU mm. no, safe harbor, safe harbor yeah. was uh, made illegal <laughs> or, or was uh, found contravening to privacy. During that six-month period, the organizations could apply for something called a DRIP, Data Retention Implementation Plan. Okay. They would outline roughly what, what they were going to do around mm. the metadata retention and provide that to the government. And then they would have up to 18 months wow. to actually implement it. Okay. So reality is it's going to be implemented around 2017, most okay. likely for mo- mm. most organizations. But many, many organizations would already be, many ISPs and telcos would be already holding this data, wouldn't they? Yes, exactly. And that goes to what is the data we're mm. talking about here. There is all this stuff around, they'll understand the conversations you're mm. having and so forth. The metadata, by definition, is data about data. Yep. You've yes. got an article which kind of highlights it, and I'll actually talk about the the, the legal document which mm. has the six mm. areas. This is what the government are asking ISPs, telcos to hold, and this is information that needs to be retained for a minimum of two years. Yeah, the two-year factor is yeah. interesting because they were trying to get two years back in 2012. Mm. So this is this was stuck in their head for <laughs> quite some time. They've this has been around for 4 or 5 years now yeah. and they finally got it implemented. Yeah. Well, we'll start with phone calls. So phone calls, it's phone number of the incoming call, phone number of any outgoing call, the date, time, duration, location of the phone call being made, certainly on mobiles where you can be moving around, so the the location is very important obviously. Other pieces around the device, so that each each phone has an IMEI code, a unique code to that phone. So as well as knowing phone call was being made, they'll be able to pin it to to a device also. From other internet side, it, it gets a little larger. So the email address that is being used, the time, date, size, and any email addresses that you're sending that email to uh, for anything in online chat the date, time, the person you're interacting with, the person who you are, your ID. And then there's a wider thing, internet usage, how much bandwidth was used at any point in time, uh, what size of files are being transferred up or down. Interesting thing there is from an email perspective, from a social chat message, (laughs) this is only where it's being performed by an Australian provider. So all your Gmail emails, all your Outlook emails, all of your Facebook uh, connection, just doesn't 
um, touch mm. any of it. This no. act does not touch any of that. No, no, so the, the vast majority of us, I would sense, are going to be using Gmail, using something that isn't hosted by Australia. Yep. And, and I think, therefore, it, it sways more towards the, the use of phone. Yep. I, I would agree. I mean, if you think about your email usage, you have two types. You have a corporate email usage, and mm. pretty much the corporate it has unfettered access. Yep. Um, and then you have your private email usage, mm. and I would agree. I, I use Gmail. I'm mm. sure some people use Hotmail, Yahoo. They're, they're mm. all basically are non-Australian services. Mm. Telstra, obviously... Offer well, yeah. their email. I know my relatives use it. Mm -hmm. So there perhaps are older generations yep. that use the telcos. The actual stipulation on the, the, the definition of the metadata rule, uh, metadata data items, we'll also put that link mm -hmm. in to the uh, website. Yeah. There's six areas. Mm -hmm. So the first one is they need to know information about the subscriber. Mm -hmm. And so this is like the PII information of the yeah. subscriber. Who is the subscriber? Who is the originator? Who are you? Yeah, and, and that's and that's part of the content that's that's definitively provided as part of the law. Yes. Okay. It's so so it's, um, basically the first thing is any information for the identif for identification purposes of okay. who you are. Right. So that's to basically authenticate mm. you are who you are so that you can go into a court of law mm -hmm. and say this person made this or did yep. this okay so it is purely for the purpose of identifying who you are mm. not what you're doing mm -hmm. at this point just who you are okay. and that could be billing information it's going to be mm. primarily yes. billing information the next one is the source of a communication so the phone number the ime identifying details of the account the IP address and port number. So the IP okay. address of where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. So this is where some of the news Concerned articles... privacy. Well, mm -hmm. no, some of the news articles have said, oh, the way to get around this is to use a VPN. Fun fact. What is VPN? VPN is a virtual private network. It secures all your internet activity to ensure the data is encrypted and secured from prying eyes. It's become popular in recent years to overcome geo-restriction. For example, Netflix will not allow you to access US content from an Australian IP address. By using a United States IP address through a VPN, you get access to all of that data. The other popular use for a VPN is torrenting. Whilst this stops your local ISP seeing the activity, the other IP address may be still holding those logs. Most probably don't. If you're using an ISP in Australia, you're still using that ISP to get an IP address yes. that you'll be using. So it'll be interesting because <laughs> if you, if, when we're data guys, mm. if you look at the log files, mm. you'll see that, okay, yep, this IP address connected on the internet at this time. Yep. We don't exactly know what they did. Mm. But the metadata laws don't actually collect that information no. anyway. They want the target <coughs> IP address, which is the next one, which is the destination of the communication. Mm. So the third one is the destination. So in that case, it's what is the destination mm. call, like you said. Yeah. The uh, telephone number, mm -hmm. the IP address allocated to a subscriber device connected to the internet at the time of the receipt of the communication. Mm. The fourth one is the date and time and duration. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty much... Mm. So if you were to think the content is sitting in between the start and end time, yep. they're asking for the date and time and the duration, mm. not the content. Mm. The type of communication, examples yep. would be voice, SMS, email, mm. chat, forum, social mm -hmm. media, exactly. And the sixth area is the location. 
This is a little bit of the uh, possibly the issue with some people where they're thinking that they'll figure out how fast you were going in a car <laughs> because it's tracking your IP loc your every, your every GPS few seconds location. It's getting GPS. Yeah. I think the reality is you can turn that off on mm -hmm. your phone mm -hmm. um, and not provide it to your ISPs if you yep. turn it off. So the location of the equipment or a line used in conjunction with a communication. So yeah. that is those are the kind of metadata attributes so, that are so being it's, captured. it's not looking at what the conversation is that's going on it's not looking at the content of the email it's not actually looking at if you're sending a file looking into that file and going what is in that file um, no all it's looking is a total bandwidth mm. so i.e the duration yeah so if it's a call what's the duration mm -hmm. if it's an internet session what is the total amount of data okay that we the, this information we're saying this has to be retained by the telco, by the ISP for two years. But is that the way that governments are going to access this? Or is it that they're going to be drawing it into their own areas to do this pattern matching, this analytics process? It's a, that's a very good point. And it's an area that no one's really discussed. Okay. Uh, when we look online to see information about Australia's metadata laws. It's all about the, the, the type of data being captured and who has access to that data. Yeah. But how do they have access mm. to this data? <laughs> do they have to contact Telstra, mm. Optus, IINet, yeah. um, and, all the, and, and request the information? Mm. Or are they going to centralize it? And I believe they're going to centralize it right. into like a honeypot, okay. which is... A big centralized repository. Now that that becomes yeah, because obviously when it's centralized and everything has a date and time stamp yeah, tagged yeah. on it, and you have IP addresses and you have personal identifiable information, mm. so you can then create a profile of how someone has mm. behaved over time, and you can overlay that against the whole population. Next up, in part two, separating the myth from the fact. So what about the myths and facts <laughs> around this? Because there's a lot of sensational information going out there. It'd be really interesting to know what is truth and what is myth. Yep. Well, the the number of myths that's been going around that, hey, somebody in um, somebody is a librarian who is a government employee can go in and go and look at the content of the email I've sent or go and see the chat or the text that I sent to my mum or, or my lover and just being able to have unlimited access okay. to anything they want. So what you've described there is, I see as two things. One is access, mm -hmm. so the, like a, a non-authorized person accessing data. And two is the type of data being collected, i.e. the contents of a conversation, yep. the contents of an email. So what is, so that's the myth is that mm -hmm. someone, the, the, there's two levels. What's the fact? The, the fact is that uh, the amount of data that people can look at, so there is an access restriction. We're, we're, it's not so clear what that is, but there are access restrictions. But it's limited to what we've just talked about, which is just that metadata. So it's not the the content of the email. It's not the actual text that's gone on in the, in the chat. Uh, the the <clears throat> excuse me, the government still needs to put through a court order or a warrant 
to be able to get access to that low level data. So, the, and, I, and I think that's pr probably the prime piece about what this metadata law is, is using all of those tools, uh, using all the analytics tools to do the investigative process. And then when something pings up that does look interesting, to go through those same processes that they always used to, to actually say there is something here going on here that I think is wrong and put in a request for access to that deep level of information. Well, it's important that you mention that because it's not as if these organizations haven't already had access to this data. Mm. There are articles out there that indicate that over the last five years, there's been over 750,000 requests for access to metadata. Mm. And this is through the proper the process of uh, court orders yep. or whatever, yep. and then going to directly to the telcos in question and getting and that data. Yeah. So now it's about, and that that was including the contents mm -hmm. of the conversation yep. and and so forth. So they used to do this, mm. and it used to be a lot more difficult to do. Yeah. Now it's just the metadata. For two years, they have to centralize, turn it into a mm. honeypot, um, and provide access to government organizations. Mm. From the government organization perspective, well, let, let's look at crime crime enforcement. Uh, that crime, the amount of data that was available to be used after a crime, that uh, a crime occurred, they'll, they'll be using CCTV, they'll be using... Uh, anything that they can around uh, what's been going on at that site at that time. It's it's always been a backtrack. Well, so it's, so it's, let's think about it in you, relation to a crime investigation. A crime will occur and um, the police will, as always, have been try and gather anything and everything that they can about what happened and what happened to the lead up to that. So A, they can catch them. And B, that they can say, well, what things can be put well, they, in place. They can prosecute them. Yeah. To, in a court of law. So yeah. there's enough information to legally link that person to that To crime. that information. And that's where the, having the access to the metadata comes but, into But that's, that's an after-the-fact yes. uh, case. And so therefore having a court order for an after-the-fact um, instance make, makes sense. Yes. So what we're saying here, though, is that that's been spread around. So that data is immediately going to be available you don't have to go through a court order that you would be so it's able predictive. to it's a predictive piece and, and i think that that changes I mean, is it really where we're getting into proactive crime identification well i think that's the slippery slope mm. the justification is we want to find terrorists mm -hmm. the reality is we might find tax avoiders yeah we might find speeders we might find People who are in, in Abuse, abusing social social services and yeah, yeah exactly going oh I'm on disability but and they've been out on the golf course all week that's correct and it's not too hard to think that in five ten twenty years time that is exactly what this data mm -hmm. is going to be used for predictive analysis is going to go over this and saying they said they were at work mm -hmm. they weren't at work they were claiming workers comp and clearly they were they were at a golf course I see that as a true concern. Is this slippery slope of precog? What's it yeah. called? The precogs? Yeah, precognitive in uh, <laughs> minority report. Minority report. It gets to it that level be, yeah. where it's uh, it's a predicting pr predictive. the future and therefore 
Well, really, arresting the person before they, they, they. That's where the. I mean, the immediate value is to be able to prosecute recent crimes mm-hmm. because you have the evidence. You can go back and see this date and time. Who who? I think there was a, an article or a, a news article where it was someone was dumping trash mm-hmm. in one council, mm-hmm. and the council requ- had nine requests to the metadata information around. I think it must have been the telephone date conversation, and date right. and time of where they yeah. were, and they were able to prosecute mm. one person for okay. dumping stuff. So that gives you an example of where this could be used. Mm. Now, it, the intention was it's going to be used for terrorism. The reality is a council used it. Yeah. We have visibility around the metadata laws. Yeah. I can go to the government website, look at the bill, see all the conversations, mm-hmm. see who's agreed with what, see yep. all the kind of recommendations and amendments and how it went through, and then understand the impact. Mm. If we went to the US government... <laughs> Nothing. What What is... What are some of their security mm. agencies doing? I mean, yeah. this isn't even talking about what possibly ASIO is already mm. doing now. Already. Like covert stuff. Mm. This is this over. Is in the open. And uh, um, I think you said Telstra have actually opened up mm. that you can go and look at the metadata that w- will be being released to the government. So you can, you can see the amount of data and, and maybe um, qualm your fears about what, what it is, is that they're capturing? Yeah. yeah, a really good Gizmodo article, where the author pretty much debunks a lot of the fear mm. around mm. the type of data that's being captured. Like I said before, the only PII that's being captured is the originator, who yeah. you are. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, it's, it's just about who you're talking to, what when you're, you're doing, talking, the frequency. The yeah. frequency. Well, the frequency will be dictated by the number of transactions. Mm. But they don't actually do, I don't believe they, they will provide an aggregate view. They mm. will provide an individual view. It's up to that final platform. That's another issue or another interesting thing is what is going to process this data? Something in the cloud. <laughs> Next up in part three, we continue our discussion on what is fact and fiction with metadata laws. Okay, so what's another myth? The government will be able to track where I go through my mobile phone. And I think the truth there is that it's to the cell tower so that, that you're, you're located in. It's not your GPS location it, unless you've shared that with somebody else. You've shared that, if you've shared that with Apple or with Google, who's then sharing it with the NSA, then again, there might be a possibility that the Australian government can find that out, but by default under this metadata law, no, it's only going to be something like to the, the cell, cell phone tower. tower. Yes. Or okay. if you're at home and using home, so then obviously your, your home address is there. So it's not your GPS location. Nope. It is your cell phone tower. Mm-hmm. They're near your cell phone. So, so I, I know that you can actually go, if you have an Apple phone, mm-hmm. if you go through the settings and That's... go through location services and then go through common locations, you can actually see the top 10 places yep. where and, you've been. And certainly with Apple, they actually pin it. So they pin home for me. So they know where my home is. They know where my work is because they've seen the pattern 
of those places of, hey, by Monday at nine and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday at nine, I'm in the same position. So they've labeled that work. And I believe Android is just the same because my wife has a Samsung and she used to get messages when she was on the way home telling her about alternate routes, hmm. how to get, how to home. get home. And nowhere did she tell them mm. anything about where she worked mm. or where she lived. It's just the, the but the method that this, the metadata process, they will be able to see when you move from tower to tower, but it's going to be at a broad brush. Okay. Okay. Itself. So we don't think they'll be able to catch speeding people. With, so with for, for instance, the, 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 the theory being, I've got my phone. It's in my car. Mm. I'm traveling here to barrel. Yeah. And it's pinging every 45 seconds my location. What they might do is put, if they find a thousand people are doing that every Friday at uh, 4 p.m., they might put a police well, car I, I, I would <laughs> Yes, I would suggest you just turn your GPS uh, location services off on your phone to be sure. But um, from what we can see, it is the cell phone towers. Mm. What about how many agencies have access to this data? Agencies that can currently access this. It's not just the police. Um, security side, ASIO, ASIO, already have access to, can request access to that data. From a Centrelink perspective of people on disability trying to cheat the system or claiming too many things, that they already have that access. So it, it's, it isn't that your local librarian can do it. it. It's still restricted set of people that can access this data and will continue to. Yeah, because I think another thing that they're introducing by making this overt is by having the privacy commissioner involved who can overlook the type of access. Mm -hmm. Now the reality is there's going to be so much people access or so mm, many so different much access. So many different parts or so many different organizations accessing the data that it's realistically going to be probably difficult to police it mm -hmm. against government. Now, I mean ultimately you can think of what may be required is some sort of legal confrontation to occur as inappropriate usage mm. of the data. Yep. For instance, one organization has accessed the data, made a prosecution according to the data, and then the person who has been prosecuted sues the organization mm. that's done so, and then in a court of law, it's deemed to be an inappropriate use. Unfortunately, there's probably going to be the need for those precedents to yes. set yeah. a standard with big fines if mm. it gets inappropriately used, which mm. is another aspect that actually, actually I don't think this bill covers is inappropriate usage of the metadata. Mm -hmm. There is no fines for that. No. I, I saw that there was a fine for not implementing it. Mm -hmm. So there's a quarter of a million dollar fine for each infringement for the ISPs not, yeah. for not implementing a metadata. Mm -hmm. So there is this strong stick around okay. getting it implemented. Mm -hmm. There is also uh, $130 million of money that the Grant ISP wise. grants mm -hmm. that, that they can apply for to assist with the uh, implementation of the metadata rules. Um, what's another myth? Data retention reform will cause telecommunication companies to increase their fees. Hmm. There, there could be a potential there, but and I, I, I think you said that um, in the press it was potentially hundreds of millions of dollars to implement this. Well, uh, 
it doesn't that doesn't well, square. Yeah, <laughs> we, our we, background, our bullshit detector is going <laughs> through the roof because we know to begin with they're collecting this information already. Yeah, it's more around providing the data product on a regular basis to then provide to a third party and then having that in an operational capacity. And I can't see that as being excessively expensive. Certainly not in the hundreds of millions. No, no, I, if, if we tried to implement, maybe, perhaps it's more the legalities. Mm -hmm. If you get lawyers involved and all these yeah. different things and litigation and risk mitigation is around, then perhaps it can escalate. Mm -hmm. But the pure function of collecting the data and providing it to another organization i.e. whoever mm. wherever this honeypot's going to be mm. i can't see that big hundred of millions of dollars the other one i've heard is telecoms companies will be able to use all of this metadata and sell all of my data for them to make profits they're doing that already yeah to a certain degree under current privacy law under current privacy law telstra can do what they want with their own metadata mm. And if they don't leverage their existing data, I would suggest they don't have a good data-driven organization. Oh, yeah. Because realistically, they should be using that data to provide a better customer engagement. Mm -hmm. What they cannot do is sell that data to another organization at an individual level. I believe they can do it at an aggregate level, mm -hmm. as a depersonalized yep. level. Mm -hmm. So they can possibly say that this postcode behaves in a certain mm. way, this suburb behaves in a certain way, this segment behaves in a certain way, so anyone with this product type behaves in a certain yep. way. And uh, I mean, in the open data policy, the US open data policy that, that came through last year, the, the recent piece where the government has actually opened up some of its own internal data, the, um, the GNAF, the, the geolocation points, I mean, could that be our next thing is in five years time, actually all of this activity, the metadata is going to be released to any organization or individual that wants to use it in a completely depersonalized manner. Okay. I think your final point <laughs> as a depersonalized manner, perhaps, mm -hmm. because that first out of those six areas, even the IP address, mm. there are there is PII in this data. There yeah. is personal identifiable information in this metadata, mm. which cannot be released to the broad public. Yeah. So if it is depersonalized and aggregated, mm -hmm. I believe it could be. However, I did see a repercussion of having these big data sets being released in open mm -hmm. platforms and the aggregation of multiple big data sets, leveraging commoditized cloud hardware to be able to stitch together an individual person's behavior. Mm -hmm. And the example was around uh, Uber data. Mm -hmm. So people would, the Uber data I believe was released, or maybe it was taxi data, mm -hmm. I think it may have been New, New York taxi data, was released up to a block level. Right. So it wasn't the direct, like, mm, within a meter. Premise. It yep. was within 30 or 40 mm -hmm. meters or something. We didn't know who it was in the taxi, mm. but there was another, another uh, a, enough smart data scientists mm. to be able to go, this drop-off address mm. is nearest to this house. Mm. Who lives at this house? Look at the social data. 
like Facebook, okay, mm-hmm. this person lives there, and they frequent this location every Friday night. They go to this this pub every yeah. Friday night. Every Saturday night, they go to this brothel, mm. and before you know it, they've made an, a discovery around a behavior, and purely around this anonymous open source data mm-hmm. by stitching together multiple different data sources. I think there ha- we have to be careful around this idea of just anonymizing the data. I, I do think it has to be aggregated because if it's anonymized individual, mm-hmm. it's, it's still, it's still, you can still stitch it <clears throat> with someone else. If it's anonymized aggregate, mm-hmm. it's much, well, it's hopefully next to impossible to figure yeah. that out. The minimum <laughs> aggregate level would be a, a cohort of 200 or a thousand mm-hmm. people or something like that. The government wants to be on the front foot around metadata. Mm-hmm. They have, I believe they were collecting this anyway. Mm-hmm. They just didn't need to retain it for two years. Mm-hmm. They, they want to be in a position where if something does happen, they can go through the, the history and find. Mm-hmm. The problem is it's going to be used for other purposes mm-hmm. other than terrorism. And it's going to be accessed by people who probably at this point shouldn't be accessing the data. Yeah. And the third issue is leakage, is that it could possibly get hacked and released. And if that were to occur, then it's a honeypot of yeah. information for any organization mm-hmm. to be able to access and understand what is a populist doing. Mm-hmm. That is the direction that the world is heading. Yeah. It's not, we're not getting de-digitized. We're getting more, more, digitized. more digitized. In fact, the Internet of Things mm-hmm. is happening. Yeah. And how do you prevent your Fitbit, your Fitbit yeah. from from if that's going to somewhere some server some in the US mm-hmm. all they need to do is put in a GPS locator mm-hmm. that you can't turn off mm-hmm. and now and they have everywhere yeah. you've mm-hmm. been and, and the time of day the, yeah the time of stuff. day yeah. and h- what your heart rate was yep. doing at the time <laughs> how many mm-hmm. steps mm-hmm. Uh, how many levels you were it's there's it's only going to get more and mm. more and more. So if the government doesn't do this, someone else is going to know more than the government. I.e., the U.S. government is going to know more about us, about the Australian mm. citizens, than the Australian it's government is. So it's a bit of the, the devil we know versus the devil mm. we don't. Okay, Mark, so given all the research you've done, what's your opinion on the impact of the metadata law? The metadata laws, I think, had to come into place, given the fact that other countries, companies are doing it. And it was only a matter of time before this was going to be legislated. If we think about our privacy in 50, 100, whatever years, I can't see this information just disappearing into the ether so the capture of it is going to happen but I, I am concerned around the access to the metadata if they had done something where there was a much more rigorous and highly visible way of accessing that metadata data and making a large amount of accountability I would pro- I'd be more comfortable All right and so, J- James, what what are your final thoughts yeah, around the metadata laws? I'm I'm on a similar aspect there that uh, this data was already being presented 
it's formalizing the process. Uh, it's putting a bit of onus on the telcos to hold all of this information. I don't think that the telcos wouldn't have been holding this and using this to help them build better products, help them sell more content. I think it's the fact that, as you say, any and all government agencies, I think it's with 65 and counting agencies who've uh, put their pitch in to say, I want access to this data. I think there should be a level of segregation uh, that, that can be applied across there. That's, I think that's a slippery slope. Yeah. That's the end of another episode. Uh, episode, episode two. two. Wow. So thanks all for listening. I hope you enjoyed this extended episode. Please give us feedback on anything you liked, didn't like, whether the background music and the fun facts. Uh, we said last time, identity theft. I think that's uh, a hot topic. I hope you join us for that. I'm Mark. And I'm James. Signing, signing off, off from the Two, two Data Guys. This podcast contains the views and opinions of the creators and is for educational and informational purposes only.